Improving your leadership skills will help you in every area of your life, but it's tough to know where to get started. And that's why we created the Achievement Index Assessment. You can take the assessment at theachievementindex.com. It takes about five minutes and it's going to generate a personalized report that breaks down how you prioritize, leverage, and execute. Go to theachievementindex.com or find the link in the show notes. It's fun to come in and say, do we really have to do things that way? How can we challenge that? How can we challenge the status quo and build something better and have more fun while we're doing it? I raise $0 from the East Coast or West Coast. All of our capital, all $15 million came from middle America. Furthermore, 80% of that capital came from women and almost half of it came from a key group of influencers. And so all that to say, like, I don't conform very well. Welcome to The Achievement Index, a podcast designed to help you understand and accelerate the ways you perform. I'm Dr. Apollo Ameka. I created The Achievement Index based on my experience in the FBI, U.S. Army Special Forces, and business. According to The Achievement Index, vibrant success is the result of doing well in three areas, or as we like to call them, orientations. Prioritize, leverage, and execute. On this podcast, I'll be getting inside the minds of noteworthy leaders to explore how their unique orientations inform the successes and challenges they've navigated throughout their lives and careers. Today, I am joined by an absolutely amazing guest, Carrie Colbert. Growing up in the Texas panhandle, venture capitalist is probably not what Carrie Colbert would have answered if someone had asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? Nonetheless, the twists and turns of her career and her life led her to her current role as founder and general partner of Curate Capital, a fund that invests in businesses by women for women. Graduating with her MBA and petroleum engineering degrees from the University of Texas, Carrie quickly rose in the ranks at Hillcorp, the largest privately owned oil and natural gas producer in the U.S. So quickly, in fact, that she was able to retire at age 38. Okay, 38. Right at the dawn of the influencer age where she amassed an Instagram following of over 80,000 and experienced a flood of female founders in her inbox with brilliant business concepts just needing a savvy investor's support. When she saw 10x returns and more opportunity than she had personal capital, she launched Curate in 2021 and raised $15 million primarily from women, overshooting her goal by 50%. She's been featured in Forbes, Fast Company, TechCrunch, Paper City Magazine, and is a sought-after speaker and podcast guest. That's why she's here. Of all her roles, she is most proud of her partnership with her husband, Mark, and being a mommy to her five-year-old daughter, Ellie, and her two-year-old son, Luke. Carrie, how are you doing today? I'm great. Uh, That five-year-old daughter is actually turning six in a few days. So we tried to do some family photos this morning. So that's what my morning has been. And then straight into some meetings and now this. But no, things are good. I had uh, kids later in life and I joke that they're either going to keep me young or completely wear me out. I'm not sure. And it varies from day to day, but they definitely are a bundle of energy and take a lot of energy (laughs) for sure. But things are good. Thank you. Yes. uh, So she's about to turn six. 
Yes. So we just wrapped up kindergarten. And, you know, I was one of those people that for a myriad of reasons I won't bore you with, didn't necessarily think that kids were in the cards for me. You know, I was just kind of career focused and relationship wise, it just hadn't happened. And so I thought, oh, that's just not going to happen. And then I had two surprises in my 40s. And so they are the biggest uh, blessings I I never knew I needed for sure. I mean, it certainly teaches me so much on a day-to-day basis about how to be a better human and and better business person and just better all around, I think. So it's a good thing. This just became a parenting podcast. Uh, (laughs) And I claim no expert uh, perspectives (laughs) on that, but I have a lot of lived uh, experiences for sure. Yeah. Well, as a child of parents who were in their 40s when I was born, I can tell you that your kids are going to turn out to be awesome. Okay. Oh, that's great uh, to hear. You know, I had parents who were in their 40s when they had me. Uh, And I have a four-year-old turning five in a couple of weeks and a one-year-old turning two next month. So Ah. I'm right there with you on the, yeah, this is either going to keep me young or it's going to send me to an early grave. Um, Exactly. We're in the thick of it together, it sounds like. Absolutely. I'm probably going to come back to that parenting thing because it's so clutch. And it seems like looking at the composition of, of your business and the businesses that you invest in, I'm sure that parenting is a central theme that emerges quite often for you. Absolutely. You know, as we invest in businesses, we're primarily focused on consumer brands. And we say, you know, kind of buy women for women. And the idea there is that the stats show that women control about 85% of household spending. And so our belief is that, you know, women know what other women want and need. Mm-hmm. And so they're developing the the products and solutions that women want. And when I talk about what women want and need, that, of course, includes their families and children. Yeah, and absolutely. And, and spouses and everything as well, you know, the whole ecosystem there. But uh, yeah, kids are definitely a, a part of that when we are evaluating uh, potential investments. It's also a, a topic that I talk about a lot with our founders, you know, the founders and CEOs we work with. Many of them, I would say most of them are are on the younger side of things, although a few are, are older than mm-hmm. I am, but most are, you know, late 20s, early 30s. And it's a real struggle for them as they see a lot of their friends and, you know, in some cases, coworkers, colleagues, whatever, you know, having kids and families. But for them, you know, their business is kind of their child at this point. And, you know, it's a real, um, you know, scary proposition for them. Like, hey, am I going to miss the boat by not having a family? And, you know, my my feedback is always that, not to sound too trite, but I think in many ways, life kind of works out the way it's supposed to, Mm. right? Like, you can't sweat about the timing because... There is no prescribed timeline, you know, for for everyone, you know, a universal timeline. And so, you know, for me, I didn't have kids until later. And I'm very thankful for that. I certainly had some maturing to do. And I worked a very intense corporate job, you know, that required me to be at my desk for many hours or traveling for many days at a time. And, you know, that certainly wouldn't have been conducive to being a mother. And so while I still work a lot, I at least have the flexibility, you know, to some extent of kind of crafting how that looks vis-a-vis the children and their activities and all that. So, you know, yeah. I think it's it's a real pain point for women and and just kind of knowing how to navigate that and, you know, when's the right time and how is that going to impact my business and my career and a lot of conversations yeah. happening kind of behind the scenes about parenting and and when it happens and, the, you know, how that impacts um, the business. I'm sure. There's a ton to unpack there. And Mm -hmm. I I definitely want to because it's at the center of your mission. And it's also there's that mismatch that you talk about where we know that what is it something less than 2% of capital goes to 
women founders, right? But right. if they're making 80% of the purchasing decisions in the household, then there's that obvious kind of mismatch and, and an opportunity there. And I want to I want to unpack everything that this means from the business sense and from the human sense and from your journey. But first, sure. I want to dive into... Um, so you took the achievement index, the assessment. <laughs> so you came back as 44% prioritized. 28% leverage and 28% execute. So you tied on leverage and execute. And I'm not sure if you had a chance to look over it, but how did it strike you? You know, it's interesting that we're talking about this on the heels of the parenting discussion, because if I would have taken this about 10 years or so ago, I probably would have been more all in on, yeah, you know, one aspect. But I think, mm. I think I've had to let go of some things, you know, some of the perfectionist tendencies or some of the certain aspects of, of my kind of the way I performed before. Yeah. It's probably a more balanced approach. So I, I actually wasn't surprised to see that I, I wasn't like, you know, all one thing or another because I, I definitely have had to, to kind of learn to let go of some things, learn to delegate some things and learn to really focus on prioritizing, you know, what can be the best use of my time? Where can I make the biggest yeah. impact and let go of some things that I probably wouldn't have let go, go of prior to this? If that makes yeah. sense. No, that makes total sense. And so, you know, you mentioned the prioritizing piece, and that is the way that we look at things is through this lens of that it really takes three things to be successful. You have to prioritize, right. meaning like knowing what must be done. What mountain are you going to climb? Where's the flag on top of the mountain? Leveraging, which is building out that base camp and making the climb easy. And then execution is, you know, charting the path and making it happen and actually walking the path, right? And it's not like every one person has to do each of these things equally. But these are the things that are required for anything to be wildly successful. And so right. you you say that you're shifting. It sounds like you you in the past would have been less prioritized. And now you're more prioritized because you are, are feeling more the realities of trade-offs. And is that is that what you're saying? That's accurate. Yeah, that, that is absolutely accurate. And I think during this season, even from a, a kind of a personal wellness perspective, I've had to say, look, these are my personal priorities. And mm. it's most basic. It's taking care of myself, taking care of my family and building my business. And so if anything doesn't filter through those priorities as, as a yes, then it kind of gets sidelined. And so, you know, I, I think it's important yeah. to remember that like different seasons of life can look different. Um, and there have been times that I've said yes to every opportunity, yes to every social invitation, yes to every charity or cause. Yeah. But that's not this season. That doesn't mean it's gone forever. Um, you know, another thing I was just talking to a friend about, we had a lunch meeting today and she she was talking about travel. And, you know, I used to travel a ton. Well, travel looks and feels a little different when you've got two young kids. And, you know, I try not to get too down about that because it'll come back, but it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. okay, it's not yeah. a vacation anymore. It's like a trip, right? Like I have to just adjust my expectations. And some things are, are, you know, you're adjusting your expectations up during a certain season and then certain times they go down, right? Like, but I just think it's important to remember that nothing is forever, right? Yeah. Like we, we have the ability to morph and change and grow and adjust as needed and as warranted by different seasons of life. So that's where I am right now. I love it. I love Carrie's self-awareness and this call out that different phases of life require you to adjust to sometimes be more prioritized, more leverage, or more execute. She said that if she had taken this 10 years ago, that it would have been super execute dominant. But that's probably why she's so good at doing what she does, because she's been in the trenches. But 
she didn't get stuck there. And she's recognizing that in this season, she needs to shift to be more prioritized. If you want to find out where you are, you can go to www.theachievementindex.com to take The Achievement Index and get your own score back. All right, now let's get back to Carrie's journey. Looking at your background, you've got an MBA, right? And this is where you get like a really broad general set of skills on how to be an executive and run a business, right? And yeah. uh, contribute to a larger machine. And then you've got this really specific, it seems like technical skill set as well on the engineering side. Is that accurate? Yes, that's correct. And and a little background on how we got there. So I was from a really small town um, in the Texas Panhandle. That's the part of Texas that's as far north as you could go and still be in Texas. So we were closer to, say, Colorado and Kansas and Oklahoma than we were Houston. So middle of nowhere. So not only small, but very isolated middle of nowhere. Got it. Um, And so no one in my family had ever gone to college. I was top of my class and thankfully had a, a really great school counselor who said, well, you should study engineering. And I said, great, what's that? You know, and there was one engineer in my small town and he agreed to meet with me. And, you know, I remember this very clearly sitting across this desk at his, his big fancy office in our small town. And he said, well, you should be a petroleum engineer. That's what I was. And he kind of slid wow. a brochure brochure across the table for the University of Texas Petroleum Engineering. And he said, I've never recommended anyone for admittance to this program, but I'd be, you know, honored to do that for you. And so, okay, that's great. It turned out that's where I got your full ride scholarship. And so I moved to Austin, um, which may sound close because it's all Texas, but that was <laughs> 600 miles from home and yeah. I didn't know anyone else there. And so I studied petroleum engineering. And Happened to um, graduate at the top of my class with a 3.98. I had a 1B the first oh, you, semester. Oh, you happened to? You happened to. <laughs> you just well, you just accidentally graduated. At the stumbled top of into class. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that to say that all of my early decisions were just very practical and pragmatic in nature. I mean, I didn't have any safety net or any privilege to speak of. I mean, I understand there are certain degrees, but I mean, in terms of financial means yeah. or legacy connections at school or anything, I was kind of out there on my own and needed to prove myself. And I knew that education would be a great equalizer, so to speak, and provide opportunities that wouldn't be open otherwise. And so I was very focused on studying and making good grades and getting a good job. And so obviously that education then led me to a career in Houston. And here's the the kicker. I was never passionate about the energy industry. I had colleagues and friends who really did get really jazzed up about, you know, the oil and gas business and, you know, the work we were doing. That wasn't me. But the real turning point for me was that the vast majority of that, it was almost a 20-year career in that industry. The vast majority of that was spent working for a company that's privately held. And I had the opportunity to work for the founder, who's now a billionaire, and work directly for him. And even though I wasn't passionate about the business in terms of the industry, I became passionate about being an entrepreneur because he ran the company Mm. in such an entrepreneurial way. And he really was so forward thinking and how he structured things and really created an environment where we all succeeded together. And that was by crafting the incentives so that everyone was motivated to move towards the same goals. And it was truly a beautiful thing to see. For instance, we had one program where, um, you know, I, I was actually in charge of the strategic plan to figure out like, okay, how much can we grow over the next five years? And we did a very detailed technical study and all this and said, well, you know, this is going to be hard. It would be kind of a BHAG goal, you know, one of those big, hairy, audacious mm-hmm. goals. But we think we could double the size of the company over the next five years. And, 
He's like, okay. And then so he rolled out this incentive program to the company and we called it Double Drive. And the idea was if we doubled the size of the company in the next five years, then everyone in the company would get a new car. And so mm. we actually did that. And I know him well enough to know that if we would not have met those specific metrics, he would not have granted the award. I mean, he would wow. always say, these are not pennies from heaven. These are rewards for achieving goals. And so it was a really cool thing. We had this moment, uh, kind of an And so wait, moment. it was everybody in the company? Yeah, from top to bottom. And so at the time, I think we gave out about 320 cars. Oh my um, goodness. Yeah. But, you know, if you look, we took the company's value from, you know, maybe several hundred million to north of a billion. So yeah. whatever financial cost there was for the reward was definitely worth it because his company and his net worth grew. But it was really powerful to see how when you align incentives within an organization, you really can see some powerful results. And, you know, I, I tell this one silly example, but it's so true. I had the guy who managed the mailroom was so attentive to me. And he'd stop by, you know, Miss Carrie, you know, Carrie, how are you doing today? Can I help you with anything? Do you have any packages that need return? Can I, you know, do any errands for you? Can I do whatever? Because he knew the more time I could focus on my value adding work, the more reward he would get, right? Because we were that's, all incentivized the same way. That's so amazing. You know, so the way that I look at this is that, you know, in that strategic planning process, that was the flag planting, right? Like that was the prioritizing. Right. And then right. you moved into leverage by saying, okay, well, how do we mobilize our people around this? And how do we mobilize them in a way that doesn't get them just fired up and like ready to put in 12-hour days and just burn the midnight oil for no reason, no pun intended, um, <laughs> but to align people in a way that's going to get them charging up, up that mountain, right? Yes, and exactly. So now also, can I just say that I have not spent a lot of time in Texas. I did this coast-to-coast drive from the North Carolina coast back to California one time. And I swear 75% of that drive was in Texas. Um, So I've I've been to Texas a little bit, but there are some things that are just highly stereotypically Texas about your story. Like petroleum engineering is like the most... And that's the most Texas engineering degree I think that you could get. And then the incentive being cars as well. Like that's just not fancy vacations. Not... No, uh uh-uh. It's cars. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, we hear this story about you sitting in front of this petroleum engineer at his big fancy desk and he says, you should go do this and then you do. And then the next thing that we hear is that you're doing strategic planning. What happened in the in-between time and how did you cultivate that, I guess, that kind of entrepreneurial or that prioritizer spirit? Because you could have been very, very execute, right? Like you could have been just figuring out how to do all the things that gets the oil out of the ground, right? Right. And I had some of my technical friends and colleagues who they got really jazzed up by that. There's a a thing when you're drilling a new oil well, they you do after you drill it to see if it's going to be successful or not, you get what's called a log. And these these guys that I worked with, they would get very excited when we get a new well log in the office to see how much oil and gas we possibly found on I was kind of bored out of my mind by that. I mean, yes, mm. I I would appreciate it if it was good news because that but it, that just didn't really jazz me the technical aspects. I was thinking more like, okay, how can we expand? How can we be bigger? What more can we do? And so, yeah, the technical details of that job never really motivated me. Never really motivated her? Really? But I mean, isn't that what she's supposed to be motivated by? Didn't she go to school for years learning how to read these technical samples and understand dense engineering data? And didn't that well-known engineer in her town recommend her for this engineering program? And now this thing is not really motivating her? 
this is what happens, right? In careers and journeys is that the things that we are trained to do, we kind of maybe just aren't even that interested in. And some people choose to double down and they choose to dive deeper into the things that don't really motivate them, that aren't really interesting. But hey, I've been trained. People are expecting me to know this stuff, to do this stuff. But she was not bound by that. She instead moved into the areas that did motivate her, that did light her up. Let's hear how she did that. And so I was recruited there to run the engineering side of the business. And then I got my MBA while I was working there. So after that is okay. when I transferred over to, you know, more like strategic planning and finance and gotcha. investor relations and all that. But, you know, really what that did was just light a fire within me. I, I loved the entrepreneurial way that he ran the company. And I got to see and do and be a part of so many cool things. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it wasn't a bad experience just because I wasn't yeah. passionate about the industry. I think a lot of times these days, I, I hear anyway young people stressing, trying to figure out their passions from so early on and figure out what they're meant to do. And that's great. More power to you in many cases. But sometimes those things can only be learned by just doing work. And it doesn't even have to be work that you're necessarily passionate about, but that's how you learn what you like, what you don't like, what you're good at, what you're not good at. Mm -hmm. And all those things are just stepping stones, right? Like, I don't think any experience is, is lost on us, even though I don't actively practice as an engineer, I'm still so grateful for that education because it taught me a way of thinking and processing data. Similarly, even though I'm not in the energy industry anymore, the the connections I made there, the lessons I learned, the experiences I had all led me to where I am today. So, you know, I, I think it's, easy to get caught up in the trap of like having it all figured out from such an early age. And, you know, I'm proof that you can not have kids until your 40s and also not even necessarily being your your dream career role until your 40s. So that that's kind of my story is that, you know, there's still time to figure it out. You're never too old. You're never too late. As long as you're actively being curious and learning and seeing what you can take away yeah. from every experience, nothing is lost. That's such an important thing to hear. And I think it's not just for for young folks, but I think it's also for people who might be later in their careers or their entrepreneurial journey as well. Is you know, there's on the front end that anxiety around what am I gonna do and how am I gonna make it big and what am I gonna be the best at? But then as you get more mature in your career, it becomes like questions of sunk cost, right? That's it's right. like, oh man, I've already been doing this for so long that like if I keep if I, I know how to play this game. And I know that if I, you know, I, I do the next thing, then I go up to the next rung and I do the next thing, I go up to the next rung. And if I want to do something else, like, I don't know how those rungs work over there. Yes. So I was at Hillcorp Energy, the company where I spent the most of my career for 12, almost 13 years. And the company is still great, but I was just personally kind of burned out a lack of, you know, kind of passion for the, the industry. And, and so I decided to step away And I didn't know what was next. And I happened to kind of be on Instagram in the early days when it was easy to, you know, post a pretty picture and get a lot of followers and likes. And I mentioned that only because it was very fortuitous. That actually is how I started connecting with brands that I just liked, whether we were working together on an influencer campaign or I just liked them or they liked me. And I just started asking women, I'm like, well, I really like you and your company. If you're ever looking for investors, I've got some money to invest. Like, Mm. totally didn't know what I was doing. But I learned on my own dime. And so over a period of about five years, basically redeployed a 
big chunk of, you know, what I had made in one career into this whole other industry and type of business. And three important things happened. One, I was having great fun, and I would not have used the word fun to describe my career before. It was it was mm. a good career, but fun mm-hmm. was not a word. I was mm-hmm. like, this is really fun. So I was having great fun. Two, I was having great results. The returns I was seeing were incredible. And so by just injecting a little capital and also some, you know, maybe mentorship or advisement or whatever you want to call it, I saw the growth that these companies were experiencing, and that was exciting. And then three, and most importantly for kind of my next step, was I saw the great opportunity set. And what I mean by that, you touched on a a little bit of it earlier, but women-founded businesses are underfunded. So even Mm -hmm. in this day and age, the stat is 1.9%. Women received 1.9% of venture capital dollars in the United States last year. So abysmally low. But the flip side of that is there's study after study that has shown that they are actually overperforming. So just to quote one example, Boston Consulting Group came up with a study a few years ago that showed for every dollar of investment, women deliver 78 cents of revenue, whereas all male teams deliver 31 cents of revenue. So it's not even close. It's like double the results. And then there are other studies that kind of back that up. And after, you know, five plus years in the space, I had a lot of relevant relationships that kind of give us an inside track. So for me, it kind of created this arbitrage opportunity, if you will, right? These businesses are underfunded yet yeah. overperforming, and we have a bit of an inside track, well, let's go to work and do more of this. So that was really when the idea for starting a venture capital fund was born. Yeah, that's so interesting that you also found this opportunity in the influencer space, right? And yes, you know, it's funny, the, sometimes the way we look at strategy is sometimes you can go top down and you can say, hey, which mountain do I want to climb? Now I got to assemble a team and the resources and then we got to execute and climb that mountain. And then there's this kind of what we call middle up version of doing strategy where you're like, what do I have? What do I yes. have with me? And now if I put all these things together, what mountains can this help me kind of take down? And it looks like you Absolutely. kind of had a middle up strategy development here where you're like, wait a minute, I have these female influencers and they're underinvested, they have great product offerings or, you know, like, but is that is that what kind of happened is you looked around and you were like, oh, shoot. And it sounds like there was some demand as well from them. Yeah. Well, and, and through my kind of angel investing experience over that five years, I realized that there was a gap in the market because I would meet with founders and they had perhaps never pitched to, an, uh, to a female investor, right? And so they would pitch to, to men and um, who maybe didn't understand their business, their product, their service, you know, because it wasn't a pain point they had experienced. And so we are not exclusionary in any way. But it's just in some cases, you know, there there is a bias where we gravitate towards what we know and understand and are fam- yeah. familiar with. And so the privilege of being able to meet with a founder who maybe hasn't gotten to visit with an investor who gets her business is a real honor in a unique situation. So yeah, and so having an outsider approach has been really fun to have in the venture capital space, right? So I had, you know, run finance and, you know, worked yeah. with a you know, private equity a lot, but I wasn't entrenched per se in the venture capital industry. That's not the industry I came up in. Certainly I had a lot to learn and there's conventional wisdom and, you yeah. know, rules and things that are in place for a reason. And we will certainly adopt that where it's needed and where it's necessary, yeah. and where it's applicable. But it's fun to come in and say, Mm, do we really have to do things that way? How could we challenge that? How can we challenge the status quo and build something better and have more fun while we're doing it, right? And so that's kind of the the perspective I, I took with this. And so 
when we were fundraising for our first fund, at first I was going out to some kind of traditional LPs and our branding and our kind of tone, I've got very bright colors and bold fonts and all this. So, you know, I walk in with my hot pink outfit on and my hot pink pitch deck and everything. And I probably raised a few eyebrows from the traditional perspective. But what ultimately happened was probably better in that we found our people. We found the people that get our message, that, you know, resonate with me. They resonate with our kind of bold branding and our bold, you know, kind of voice and tone in the market. And they like that we're doing things different. And so whether that's investors or founders, the point is like in both cases, we found our people who get who we are, right? And so we didn't go the traditional route for fundraising. I raised $0 from the East Coast or West Coast. All of our capital, all $15 million came from middle America. Mm. Furthermore, 80% of that capital came from women. And almost half of it came from a key group of influencers. And so all that to say, like, I don't conform very well. And so, you know, I'm even part of some VC groups. And I hear, like, they want your pitch deck to look a certain way and say yeah. certain things. But for yeah. me, I, I don't really pay attention to that because my investors are not the traditional limited partner investors in venture capital. My investors are high net worth individuals, not corporations, not pensions. They're just high net worth people who are looking for some place to put their money something that they want to have fun doing. They want to enjoy the businesses. They want to find a way to to influence their investments. So that's why influencers are so keen to invest with us. So we do, we do all the hard work in the background to vet the investments and make sure that it's a, you know, a sound, you know, yeah. investment from a financial standpoint, but then they can pick to kind of amplify those brands by sharing on social media, by converting. These women convert really well right. and drive a lot of sales to our portfolio company. So it's really a win-win equation. But Someone who was really ingrained in the, you know, traditional VC industry might not have seen that opportunity just because they're just not thinking yeah. that way. Yeah. And so it's been fun to just kind of build a firm in a in a different way from anyone else. It's incredible. And you hit on so many, so many things that there's there's these little threads popping out now that I want to pull on. But I, I guess, you know, looking at so less than two percent goes to women. And mm-hmm. some, you know, I've seen I've seen various stats, but if you just take black women, for instance, it's like a third of a percent or something like that, right? It's like 0.01% or something okay. insanely wow. low. I mean, yeah, it's abhorrent. And so yeah. what are some lessons that you think that you have learned? And I, I mean, I, that's why I feel like you just touched on a lot of it, of bringing this authentic brand and matching that brand with both the companies and the investors that resonate with what you're bringing, right? And if you yeah. hid the hot pink from them, then they wouldn't be able to see you, right? They wouldn't be able to recognize you and be like, oh, that's my jam. But, you know, are there other lessons that you think that can be learned for folks who are listening who are like, man, oh yeah, I want to break out like that. And I'm part of an overlooked group as well. What do you think are some of the the keys to, you know, overlooked people um, getting seen? Yeah. I'll tell two stories. One anecdotal, kind of lighthearted, and then we can get into the, the more serious meat of it. So even me, who's sitting here telling you how, oh, bold I am, I know who I am, I'm colorful, I'm, you know, whatever. (laughs) I recently, within the last uh, few weeks, joined the advisory board for a a bank here in town. And this is a really cool opportunity. But the rest of the board is pretty much a bunch of old white guys. Nothing against that demographic, but I knew the room I was walking into. So we had our first board meeting a couple weeks ago. And, you know, I pulled out a a pink dress or, you know, something. I was like, yeah, no, I better tone it down a little Mm. for for this bank board meeting. So I go in with, for me, a relatively neutral outfit, you know, um, still had a few pops of color, but but relatively toned (laughs) down for me. I walk into the, the boardroom and the first two people that greeted me said, 
I wore pink for you today. Why are you wearing black? You know, she's like, I wore color. And then this other guy said, I expected you to show up in a rainbow dress. Why did you let me down? So it was funny because they had done their research and they had this, they already knew how I was going to show up. And little, you know, did I know that? And I had kind of tried to tone myself down so I wouldn't be too out of place. And so it was a good reminder for me, just show up as your authentic self. Like people will gravitate to your authenticity more than if you try to hide it. So I said, you know, don't worry, next month I will indeed show up in, you know, a hot pink or rainbow colored dress, one or the other. So that's the funny story. Holy smokes. I can relate to this. When I first started Apollo Strategy Group, I said, oh, you know, I'm a consultant now, so I need to have some consultant photos and I need to dress like a consultant. So I dusted off my suits from when I was in the FBI and I went down to the mall and I took some headshots on an all-white background with my arms crossed and I said, this is what a consultant looks like. But it's so funny that in a space where everybody is talking about innovation, building a unique competitive advantage, and then we all strive to look like each other. So I have switched things up. You could probably almost hear my sneakers in the background right now. They are bright neon, orange, and yellow. And now that's just part of my uniform. So when I walk into a room, just like her pink dress, people have come to expect that I'm going to show up looking and acting just like myself. And every single time that I do that, it encourages other people to look and act and show up just like themselves. Plus, it's just way more comfortable wearing sneakers. But that traditional way of dressing, talking, and acting gets you into the traditional rooms. But is that where you really want to be? So when I started out fundraising, I started going to kind of traditional LPs. Then I thought, you know, a lot of my investors might come from my oil and gas network. And some of those certainly did. But really, the turning point was when I just started talking about it on Instagram, you know, or to my friends, whether in person or online, just talking about it. And the people that resonated with it will be attracted to that, right? Like, there are certain rules in this country about how you can um, kind of solicit investors. And, Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't even trying to get investors. I was just like, oh, gosh, you know, I'm so excited about this new company we invested in. And women would would reach out and be like, oh, I've been a customer of that company forever. So you're saying that if I invest with you, I could be a part of that? Or, you know, Mm. maybe a company that was solving a pain point that they had experienced. Like, oh my gosh, I've had that problem. I want to be a part of the solution. And so I wasn't even having to be outwardly salesy, per se. I was just talking about what was going on and people were drawn to that. And so, you know, I think never underestimate you know, your personal perspective, your person personality, your personal story, all those things, you know, will attract the right people to you. And so, you know, I'd love to say it was a beautiful, um, masterful plan of mine that, hey, I wanted 80% women as our investors. I frankly didn't think that was possible. But as it turned mm. out, I mean, it's created this really great ecosystem of, of women supporting women and not just as a cheesy tagline, in a very tangible way, women are supporting women and we're seeing incredible results from it. So, you know, I, I think that's my biggest lesson. And, and, and I'm telling myself these lessons, you know, day after day because we're contemplating launching our second fund later this year. And mm. the the kind of group think in the VC space right now is it's a challenging fundraising environment. I don't know. LPs are holding yeah. onto their money. No one's investing right now. But I think my people are still investing. I still think they they want another fund. They're asking me when we're going to launch the next one. I'm getting inbound interest every day. And, and again, it goes back to that I'm not drawing from the same 
you know, investor pool that everyone else is. I'm drawn from a demographic that's so different. They're not subject to that group think. They're not subject to listening to, you know, kind of the collective wisdom in that world right now because they're just yeah. not in that world. They're just, yeah. they've got some extra cash on hand. They're looking for a place to park it where they can, you know, have fun, do good and make good returns along the way. I've been thinking a lot in terms of ecosystems, right? Like Mm -hmm. you have to have all of these ingredients within your ecosystem in order to be successful, right? So you have to have the investor side, you have to have the the companies and the founders, and then you have to have the consumers, right? And you have to have all of the the people and and that are that that fill in the gaps between those groups, right? Absolutely. And yep. You have you have to have that ecosystem. Um, otherwise, uh, it's going to be if you don't have one of those ingredients, it's going to be really tough, right? Um, so in these groups where uh, where y- you were thinking, right? Like, oh man, I how how am I going to get predominantly women investors? I don't think yeah. I'm going to be able to do it. When you start talking about even more specific. Um, kind of layered identities, whether it's, you know, Black women or uh, folks from the LGBTQ community or um, disabled folks or, you know, when you start thinking about those ecosystems and like you said, just those earlier in our conversation, those preferences and those kind of different comforts, those are the things that shake shape ecosystems, right? That's so right. So like, mm-hmm. are you... It feels like... It feels like you have not... You're not feeling the edges of your ecosystem right now. It feels like you're still in this space where you're like, oh man, actually, this ecosystem is big and I can be a, a, a bigger connector. Is that is that fair to say? Absolutely. I feel like we just kind of dipped our toes in the water with the, this first fund. And I was talking to uh, some of our strategic partners yesterday and who one has a, an influencer agency. And so they reached out at the tail end of our, our fundraising for Fund One. And so we got kind of the top part of their roster in, but they're so excited. They're like, Kiri, there's so much more we can do together. There's so much more. And so they're, you know, all in on our next fund and and looking forward to, to bigger things. But I think that's exactly right. So, you know, I, I think of it as concentric circles. And you talked mm-hmm. about, you know, that that first um, symbiotic cycle is kind of our us, me, our investors, the founders we invest in, the influencers who invested in. But then you look at the influencers who have, 10 plus million followers, you know, in their community. And so as the ecosystem expands, you know, it it only benefits everyone, right? There's no downside to it. It's it's only positive. It's only upside. And so, you know, from brand awareness, from converting to sales, you know, spreading the word, like all those things are happening and it doesn't all have to, to be me driving all that, right? So it's all about creating a wonderful community where others can help spread the word and others can help grow yeah. um, you know, the mission and, and the cause, so to speak. I love it. I want to ask you more specifically about leadership and about how you approach things specifically in your company. You've got this balance of prioritize, leverage, and execute. So you can kind of go to the toolbox for whichever of those that you need. But are there times where you feel like irritated or agitated? You know, where you're like, oh man, like I'm in the wrong world. I should not be, I should not be looking at the log sample or whatever, the the core. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I shouldn't be looking at these drilling results. You know, are there times that you feel that now or that you felt that recently where you're like, oh man, I'm in the wrong world. I need to, I need to zoom out. I need to step back and look at the mountain range and and plant the flag, or I need to invest in the base camp and build out our resources, or I need to actually get in and execute. Like, are there times that where you felt out of place? Yeah, absolutely. I'll say that it's actually quite common that I feel that way. 
I still definitely know that I'm in my sweet spot professionally and like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be. But I'll say that starting something like this is very challenging from an economic perspective. Mm. And without boring you with too many specifics about it, the traditional VC fund economic model is challenging when you're just starting out. I can see why Mm -hmm. people don't start funds unless you're, you know, uber wealthy independently. Because as it stands, you know, there's kind of a management fee. Well, that's not very much to build from. You know, it's not a very big budget to build a team from. So I really can't build out a team with just this first fund. We've got a few strategic partners, but that's exactly what I've had to do is get creative about how I leverage the skills and expertise of others until, you know, we launch a second fund and whatever and have some, you know, exits and all that sort of thing where then I can afford to kind of build out a team internally. But in the meantime, I've had to get creative about leveraging the skills and and talents and expertise of others because there's not enough of me to go around, but yet there's not enough budget to really build out a team. So it's been challenging for that perspective. I've definitely had to be in the weeds more than I would like to be um, just by default. And so I'm looking forward to a time where I can get back to a bit more elevated perspective because I think that's where I really thrive. I love it. Well, this has just been an amazing conversation. And oh, uh, yeah, we, we ran the gambit from children to exits. <laughs> so yes. uh, I really, well, really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. And I, I just thought of something. If you'll indulge me for a second, I can tell a really quick story to kind of bring it full circle. And this wasn't planned. But since I mentioned the engineer from my small town, yeah, um, I'll, I'll bring it back to that. So Small town I grew up in, I don't go back. My family's not there any longer. So I haven't been back since I graduated from high school in like 1995. I'll age myself Wow. Here. Well, just a couple short years ago, I was in Austin and I'm on the um, executive advisory board for the College of Engineering there. And so we were having a groundbreaking ceremony for a new building and I was visiting with the dean and there was this man standing there kind of, you know, eyeing me. It was a little <laughs> awkward. I'm trying to converse with the dean and we finally got to a stopping point in the conversation. This man looked me up and down. He said, you don't recognize me, do you? Oh, wow. I felt awful. I'm like, you look vaguely familiar, but eh, wrong, you know, kind of not, wrong place, wrong time. Like, I can't quite place you sort of deal. And I said, no, I'm sorry, I don't. He said, well, Carrie, it's Mike Riley from Perryton. He said, I know I haven't seen you since you graduated from high school in 1995, but you're the only person I've ever recommended for the petroleum engineering department. Wow. And he said, I've kept up with you all the time. I followed your career and I just want to tell you how very proud you've made me. And so it was a very full circle moment for me. And so That's now incredible. he actually lives in Austin and so we get to keep in touch now. But it was it was very nice because, you know, I don't work as a petroleum engineer and, you know, he could have been disappointed in that. It's like, <laughs> I followed you from afar. I followed every step of your career journey and personal journey. And I just want you to know that his wife was there. He said, Lynn and I are very proud of you. So, oh my anyway. goodness. How many yeah. of us get to kind of close loops like that in our lives. That's a gift. Right I there. know. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you wow. for letting me share. Yeah. Thank you so much for all of your openness and your insights. It's been an amazing conversation and I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, Apollo. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much, Carrie Colbert, for an amazing conversation and so much perspective. Now let's dive right into our takeaways. From a prioritized perspective, Carrie says to know what motivates you. What is it that lights you up? If it's engineering this season, cool. But then when it's not, go do something else. She was able to walk away from this amazing incentives program at her company because she knew what she wanted to do. 
Which brings us to the second prioritize point is know what season you're in. So that way you can know what skills and which mindsets are going to be required for that season. She talked about seasons from parenting to entry-level positions to management to entrepreneurship. So it's really important to understand what season you're in so you can bring the skills and the mindset that match that season. And last for prioritize, Carrie stresses the power of having a brand. Have a brand. The brand might show up in your clothing, in the way you talk, in the way that you do business, in the way that you connect with people, whatever it is, have a brand. From the leverage perspective, Carrie used social media platforms to build a following. And then she was able to leverage that following in other areas of her life and business. She developed this kind of middle up leverage strategy of saying, hey, I know all of these influencers and they wanna invest. Let's build a vehicle around this. And then connected to the prioritize point, of having a brand is actually using that brand. Remember the story that Carrie told where she didn't use her brand? She had a brand and people knew of her brand, but she didn't use it. She walked into the room and just kind of blended in and looked like everybody else and people were disappointed. So if you have a brand, actually use it. And finally, from the execute perspective, Carrie understands the value of having a technical skill. For her, it was engineering. Whatever it is for you, just get good at something. And then when things have to get done, even if you're an executive and you're the only one to do them, do them. Just don't stay in a position where you have to keep executing as an executive. That was just an amazing conversation. And I want to thank Carrie one more time for joining us and thank you for listening. I'll see you on the mountain. Remember, you can find out what your achievement index is by going to www.theachievementindex.com. Take the assessment. Takes about 15, 20 minutes. Make sure you're in a nice, calm state of mind in a quiet place. And you can find out your own achievement index and figure out how you match up against our guests. I'm Dr. Apollo Omeka. If you like the podcast, please rate us on whatever platform you're listening and remember to share it with your friends. Thanks. See you next time.